Hello and welcome to the AIES Politics and Point podcast and the second episode of our special series on US-Europe relations um, supported by the US Embassy in Vienna. For all our, all our new listeners, this is a seven-episode special covering a broad range of different topics relevant to transatlantic relations uh, from the perspective of high-level US experts. My name is Christoph Schwarz, Research Fellow at the AIES, and today we will talk about the future of NATO. Sharing her knowledge with us today is Rachel Rizzo, a real expert on matters of European security, NATO, and the transatlantic relationship, who is currently Director of Programs at the Truman Center and the Truman National Security Project, as well as Adjunct Fellow with the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome, Rachel. It's a great pleasure having you on this episode. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get going, uh, could you maybe just share some brief insights with us on the work that you're doing and the role that NATO plays in your professional life. Absolutely. So I wear sort of two hats at the Truman Center for National Policy as the director of programs. I help guide the policy and strategies and programs for uh, the Truman Center, which is a national security think tank based in Washington, as well as with our um, sister organization, the Truman National Security Project, which is a community of over a thousand post 9-11 veterans, security professionals, policy wonks all across the United States and, and overseas as well. So that's really fun. And then at the Center for a New American Security, where I was full-time for a little over uh, four years, is where I work on transatlantic security issues. So issues relating to European security, EU-NATO cooperation, NATO specifically, and European security more broadly. And so, as you mentioned, what, what role does NATO play in that? It plays a major role just because it's, it's, it's the foundational alliance uh, undergirding the U.S.-European relationship. So it's really exciting to be able to talk about one of my favorite topics with you today. We picked the perfect person then uh, for this episode. Um, before we dive deeper uh, into specific NATO uh, topics, um, where do you see transatlantic relations after four years of Donald Trump generally? A survey by the European Council on Foreign Relations um, earlier this year um, suggested that a majority in, in big EU member states has uh, sort of lost faith uh, to some degree in the US as their main provider of security and also strategic sovereignty has become a, a real big issue in, uh, in, in many European capitals. So do you think that we can expect Joe Biden to sort of cure the wounds that, that Trump has left behind in the transatlantic relationships? And uh, yeah, where, where are we standing after uh, around half a year of, of Joe Biden? So the last four years were extremely difficult for the transatlantic partners. And for those of us who follow the relationship closely, it was really difficult to see the U.S. president consistently question the transatlantic relationship, the utility of our partners in Europe and the NATO alliance specifically. Every time there was a NATO summit over the last four years, we would all sit back and sort of hold our breath, unsure of what exactly would come out of the mouth of the United States president. He consistently called into question our relationship with Germany specifically, and so that was difficult. And so coming out of the Trump presidency, it was really surprising to see how quickly the relationship was, I wouldn't say destroyed, but placed under stress after 70 years of trying to build it up. And so Joe Biden came into office in January with his work really cut out for him. 
but it's good news for the U.S. European partners. He is a pro-NATO, pro-EU president. Many of his top advisors have either worked in or uh, lived throughout Europe during their time uh, within the U.S. government. And so he's stacked his administration with people who are focused on strengthening the relationship. And that's what we've seen over the last six months. There's a lot of trust to build back. And just because we have Biden in office doesn't mean that all of the issues that come along with a deep relationship economically, militarily, politically will go away. But it does mean we're in a much better position to strengthen the relationship. And for me, hopefully, uh, for it to be a more equal footing partnership between the United States and Europe. As we all know, he made his first trip to Europe last week with the G7 meeting, the NATO summit, the US-EU summit, and he came to Europe with a message that America is back, and he unequivocally stated his support for Article 5, which is NATO's foundational tenet of an attack against one is an attack against all. So I think it was a really good week last week for the transatlantic partners, and we should expect more of this going forward. Yeah, yeah, very much agree. I think uh, the the happiness in in, in uh, European leaders' faces was uh, uh, easily to be seen uh, when Biden yeah. was was attending the the summits. Um, great. So uh, let's let's jump into NATO. Um, I, I assume there might be some listeners, um, especially in in neutral Austria, that are not so familiar with NATO. Um, could you provide us with a, a brief overview of of what NATO actually is? and how it developed um, in terms of its primary tasks, um, expansion, um, and so on. Sure. So in short, I mean, NATO is the most successful, not just military alliance, but I would say alliance in history. A lot of people talk about NATO as being founded in response to the threat that was posed by the Soviet Union, which is partially true, but I think... More broadly, NATO's creation was part of a much broader effort to serve a few different purposes, with deterring Soviet expansionism, yes, um, but also forbidding the revival of nationalist military, militarism in Europe um, through partially a strong North American president, presence on the continent, and then encouraging European political integration. And I think that this has been immensely successful since its founding in 1949. And the Alliance has gone through different rounds of expansion as the world and as the European continent changed. So, you know, we saw a round of enlargement in the early 2000s with the Baltics. We saw a round of enlargement in uh, during the Trump presidency with Montenegro and just recently with North Macedonia. So the alliance has an open door policy, which is that if, if, if a country meets the requirements of, of, of NATO membership, um, you know, has done all the reforms necessary and can provide for, for, for its own defense and is, is investing in its own defense budget and capabilities, then it's welcome to join the alliance. Um, of course, there, there's a question of how far that goes. 
for many people. Um, you know, we remember the Bucharest summit in 2008 when it was said that Ukraine and Georgia would eventually join NATO. And it's 2001, and that hasn't happened yet. And Ukraine has territory that is occupied illegally by Russia, as does Georgia from the Georgian War in 2008. And so there's a lot of discussion these days about what the future of Ukraine and Georgia might hold, and, and if their future is, in fact, in the NATO alliance. So for listeners that um, that don't focus on NATO too much, I mean, I think that the, the main point is that it's, it's a military alliance, yes, but it is much more than that. It's a community of, of values and shared democratic principles. And it not only contributes to the security of the broader, broader Euro-Atlantic area, area, but also conti- uh, contributes to the rules-based international order, as we like to say today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with that, um, I think you've already taken away some of the um, parts of my next question, with, which is re- um, related to um, the purpose of NATO in the 21st century. So um, in the last couple of years, um, especially uh, under Trump, um, as you already mentioned before, it was quite a, quite of a um, rocky road for NATO with Trump declaring NATO obsolete in 2017, um, then Turkey kind of... Uh, behaved uh, irresponsibly by, for example, buying a a Russian missile system. Um, And then also in 2019, we had Emmanuel Macron um, saying that the alliance was experiencing brain death. So uh, one might conclude that um, after more than seven decades of existence, NATO is lacking some sort of common purpose um, across member states. Uh, what, what, what could you say about this? Um, does NATO have a purpose in the 21st century that is really shared collectively um, across member states and across the Atlantic, so to say? I think looking back at the Cold War, there was one strategic threat, as you could say, in the Soviet Union. And it was this sort of one monster around which all of the NATO allies could coalesce. We don't have that today. We are now facing two near peer competitors in Russia and increasingly China, who is attempting to destabilize the broader international order far beyond the Indo-Pacific region. On top of that, the types of threats that the transatlantic community faces today are much different than they were 30 years ago. So we're looking at hybrid threats, cyber, new and emerging technologies, energy security, a lot of these less tangible security items that are thus harder to approach. And so I do think that NATO does have a purpose in in that having a community of 30 allies who are all standing together to protect the territorial integrity and the security of one another is helpful in an era of, you know, security threats that emanate from so many different places. Of course, during the Trump administration, the former U.S. president consistently bashed on NATO allies and said that the United States Uh, didn't get anything from its U.S. membership in NATO. Um, 
But he also said things like the European Union was created as a, a body to literally undermine the United States. And so this pushback, I think, came from a much deeper place. Um, he also saw Europeans as free riders. I'm putting that in quotations. He used that comment a lot because countries like Germany, for example, weren't meeting their 2% of GDP to be spent on defense target. And so he sort of thought of NATO as just an excuse for European countries to have their security underwritten by the United States. Now, I think it's important to remember that Trump is not the first president to push Europeans to spend more and do more and take more responsibility for their own security. This is something that we heard from President Obama, Bush, Clinton, it's, it's not new. Um, and so I do think that at a time after four years of calling this relationship into question, it is a huge opportunity for Europeans to step up to the plate and spend more on defense and uh, take care of more of the security issues in their own neighborhood and be on a more equal footing for, as the United States. But mm. uh, it's a very broad way of saying NATO definitely serves a purpose. And I think that we have real opportunities in front of us going forward, especially with a pro-NATO uh, president in office. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, what you mentioned about Europe um, brings me to the topic of the, the European pillar uh, in NATO. Here, many Europeans argue that um, If, if, if Europeans would allocate their resources more wisely, um, for example, by integrating more deeply in European defense um, and maybe over the long term um, create a strong, stronger EU pillar within NATO even, um, this could uh, resolve some of the burden sharing issues um, that currently exist. And as you mentioned, have um, been an issue for many U US presidents um, in the past. While the U.S. has been um, a major proponent of European, European integration um, since the end of World War II, um, it has been much more reluctant in defense terms. Uh, what are the reasons for this uh, reluctance? And uh, what do you say to Europeans who argue that a more unified European defense um, under the umbrella of the EU could strengthen NATO over the longer term? So in general, I think that a stronger, more integrated European defense pillar will in turn strengthen NATO. If you listen to a lot of the leaders in the United States, not just during the Trump era, but before that as well, you get a lot of pushback in terms of how American leaders respond to the idea of a more integrated EU defense pillar. And I'm going to make a point that I've made a few times, but I think it's important to repeat. Um, so basically what ends up happening a lot of the time is that whenever the EU comes out with these new defense ideas, um, I'm thinking specifically right now about PESCO, which is Permanent Structured Cooperation, an effort on behalf of the Europeans to uh, integrate some of their defense efforts. That specifically got a lot of pushback from the United States. This was, I think, in 2017, where you had these high-level defense officials come out and say, well, we don't want the EU to duplicate NATO issues. We don't want it to undermine NATO. And then they always close with, and we don't want this to become a protectionist vehicle for European defense industry, which is basically a really 
roundabout way of saying we want to make sure that we can still sell your uh, American kit to the Europeans, right? And so I think we have a lot of work to go there. And I, I said this in the beginning, but I'll say it again. I think we have a real opportunity on both sides of the Atlantic because we now have a pro-Europe president in office. The Europeans have an opportunity to meet their defense obligations, to deepen cooperation between different European countries, to make sure that they have the capabilities that they need to secure the European continent and, and the, the surrounding neighborhoods and that they're willing to use those capabilities. And the United States, on the other hand, has an opportunity to allow Europe to do that without us pushing back on them. So I'm gonna be really interested to see what happens over the next six to 12 months in that space. But I think we are in a pretty good, we're on a pretty good path and we have a, an opportunity that both sides should seize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's maybe return to more of the uh, external issues that NATO is facing. As, as you already mentioned before, uh, historically, NATO or the purpose of NATO was always um, closely tied to the Soviet Union, which is now Russia, and Russia still plays an important role um, when it comes to the challenges that, that NATO is facing, uh, especially since 2014 and the annexation of Crimea um, we, we've really seen uh, the relationship hit, uh, hit rock bottom, you could say. Um, how do you describe the relationship between NATO and, and Russia um, today? And what do you think is uh, the, the right path forward? I think we hear a lot of times deterrence and dialogue with Russia. Um, how do those two aspects kind of uh, work together? And uh, yeah, what, what's the path forward, if I may ask? Absolutely. I think you touched on two words that are key, deterrence and dialogue. Obviously, Russia is still the greatest challenge for the NATO alliance. But that challenge looks differently depending on where you are geographically located, right? So if you are Poland, if you are Lithuania, Latvia, or Estonia, you are thinking about a much more conventional deterrent against Russian aggression. Um, you know, a lot of analysts talk about the potential for Russia to try to do the same kind of land grab in the Baltics that they did in Crimea. Yeah. I'm not as worried about that. Exactly. And I'm not as worried about that as, as some other people are. Then again, I live in the United States where we are protected by two very large oceans and I do not have Russia as a neighbor. So that's not something that keeps me awake at night. For most of the other allies, the challenge of Russia is a much less tangible and much broader one. So when you look at the, the new and emerging challenges that NATO is facing and trying, to, and trying to deal with going forward, you always see Russia there. So when you look at cyber capabilities, Russia consistently conducts, conducts offensive cyber attacks against NATO allies. And I think it was 2016 when the Alliance finally decided to name cyber as a domain of operations, which means that Article 5, the Collective Defense Clause, now extends into cyberspace. And so what deterrence looks like in that area is something that we're also, uh, we're also trying to figure out. We're sort of building the plane as we fly it in that sense. But also Russia likes to take advantage of societal changes that are occurring within 
various NATO allies. So as the security landscape has changed since 1989, so have societies at the same time. You know, we are seeing challenges with cohesion and agreements in terms of NATO allies much more starkly today than we have seen in the past. Um, we've seen allies like uh, Poland and Hungary be talked about in terms of democratic values and what that looks like going forward. I think Turkey poses a, a challenge to, to the alliance as well. But I think it's important to remember that it's, it's beneficial for us and it behooves us to work through those challenges to create a common vision because Russia likes to exploit those. Russia likes to see NATO um, come to the table mm. fractured. They do. Yeah. They view a cohesive and coherent NATO as a threat to Russian interests. So I think going forward, the more that we can have tough conversations at NATO headquarters, the more that we can understand that different allies might approach things differently, but that we're all in it together and that we're all in, you know, in search of you know the, the the same goal as sort of kumbaya as that sounds, the better it will be for for European security and for the transatlantic relationship more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this divide and rule tactic that Russia is applying, I guess, is a uh, um, yeah very important to counter. Um, also, we've already briefly touched upon um, the other elephant in the room, which is China. Um, which, if you listen to press conferences uh, and, and statements after the uh, NATO summit um, was a really big topic. And also, if you if you look at the NATO 2030 um, report that came out at the end of last year, um, which is sort of a, a, a I'm sure you can uh, tell more about this than me, but um, uh, which is sort of a, a, which are proposals for the future development of the alliance. Um, in which also China uh, played a big role. Um, and uh, I, I quote, NATO must devote much more time, political resources and action to the security challenges posed by China, um, which I assume potentially hints at the realignment of the alliance to uh, be more orientated towards the Indo-Pacific uh, and China. Do you think that um, China rather than Russia will be the, the principal challenge of the alliance in the long term? And What does that actually mean for NATO? Um, I mean, would this mean that uh, that we see NATO exercises uh, in the Indo-Pacific, or uh, are we going to see much stronger coordination uh, with uh, partners in the area, like Australia or Japan or Korea? Um, what what does the whole China issue actually mean uh, in practice? What do you think? I think this is a really good opportunity to talk a little bit about NATO 2030 and what that is and how China plays a role in it. So NATO 2030 is this, it lays out this ambitious agenda for the alliance to handle the primary challenges of the next decade. And the NATO Secretary General coming out of the NATO summit in London in 2019 was tasked with creating this forward-looking reflection process with a group of experts. Now, it's important to remember that there was a similar group of experts who did a forward-looking reflection process in 2010. 
called NATO 2020. And so they tend to do this every 10 years. Um, the reflection process in 2010 led to a new strategic concept, as will this one this time. The most interesting thing I think about this ongoing reflection process, which is going to lead into a new strategic concept for NATO, and I'm happy to talk about that if you'd like, is that China is being discussed as a challenge for the Alliance for the first time. And, and it will be present in the strategic concept for the first time. So last week I was in Bratislava, Slovakia for the GlobeSec conference, and I was moderating a panel on NATO 2030. And I did this word cloud for the audience, which meant they had this app on their phones. And I, I asked them to name what they felt as an audience of experts, European security experts, what they thought were going to be NATO's primary challenges of the next 10 years. Russia was obviously the biggest one. Maybe not obviously, but Russia was the biggest one. And right behind Russia in big bright letters was China. So it's not just NATO that, you know, folks sitting around the NATO tables that are thinking about this. I think experts and transatlanticists more broadly are wondering how Europe and how the United States deal with the China challenge. I think it's important to note that NATO tackling China is not about pushing NATO into the Indo-Pacific region. In fact, it, it would be very surprising to me to see NATO conduct, say, maritime exercises in the Indo-Pacific region. I mean, just geographically, that makes no sense. And I think it's probably needlessly pr provocative. Having conversations about China, however, is about the fact that China is now present in the European continent and throughout the European continent through efforts like the Belt and Road Initiative, through, you know, uh, foreign direct investment and IP theft and 5G, if you're following the discussions that happen on transatlantic roundtables and, and papers lately, I mean, China features heavily. And so I think that this isn't an effort for NATO to turn China into a threat. The, the Secretary General has been very clear that they don't view China as a threat. It's just, it's a challenge that we have to discuss. Um, and Europe, I think, doesn't want to get caught in between the US and China as part of this greater, great power geopolitical competition. And so we're having discussions on China. We're figuring out what it means for NATO. And I think going forward, what it looks like is, is uncharted territory right? Um, but we do have experience dealing with uh, a near peer competitor. It's just that the challenges that China poses are going to look different than I think the conventional threat that the Soviet Union posed in, mm. in, during the Cold War. These are going to be, uh, like I mentioned before, hybrid threats, cyber, energy security, um, pol politically as well. You know, mm. you don't want... Um, European leaders leaning toward China when it comes to, you know, what side to be on. I don't necessarily think that's a, a huge challenge at the moment, but it could potentially be something that we have to talk about and, and, and figure out. It's not easy. Mm, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, Europe is sort of waking up to the China question or has been waking up recently. 
um, with uh, an EU strategy on the Indo-Pacific being in development and um, also countries like Germany or France um, more assertively positioning them against China and people realizing that China is not only in our backyard, but uh, is maybe, for example, opening the Fudan University campus in Budapest uh, soon. So uh, China is definitely... Yeah, they're uh, not just in your backyard, they're in your home. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Let's uh, come maybe to some other issues besides Russia and China, because I think there's also some other areas that NATO is dealing with. Um, to mention climate change, for example, which I think uh, was put for the first time on the agenda uh, of NATO, if I if I got that correctly. You, I mean, you also you already mentioned uh, things like uh, cyber threats or hybrid threats, um, but can you maybe just outline some other areas of of, of difficulties or challenges for for NATO besides Russia and China? Yeah, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about the increasing intersection between climate and international security. So if you looked at the NATO 2030 reflection report by the experts, climate featured heavily there. But at the same time as the NATO 2030 experts, the, the Secretary General also asked a group of next generation thinkers to do their own reflection process and to provide the Alliance some moonshot ideas for some of the main security issues that they believe will face the Alliance in the next 10 years. And climate was chief among them. Um, I, I just finished writing a, a book chapter for, for Brookings on NATO and next generation public opinion. And I think, you know, we can talk about hybrid, we can talk about cyber and climate, and those are all issues that are important for the Alliance to deal with. But I think what I found really interesting in writing this book chapter was that we're sort of seeing a generational shift of opinion on what constitutes the greatest security challenges of our time. So there's been some polling done with, for, uh, by places like the Chicago uh, Council on Global Affairs and the Charles Koch Institute on some of the main issues that um, Gen Z and millennials think are, are facing our generations today. And you know, the spread of nuclear weapons was a big one. Energy security was a big one. Climate was at the top of the list. And so I think the big question for NATO is, how do you make this shift as an alliance into a new generation of entirely globalized, an entirely globalized world uh, amongst new generations of thinkers who have spent their entire lives online who have different ideas of what security means, who think of things like human security and climate migration, um, and who at times don't understand NATO and who sometimes think of it as a relic of the Cold War. You know, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, so why does NATO? I mean, those are questions that I think young people ask these days. And so among, uh, you know, alongside all of these issues that NATO is gonna have to deal with going forward, It also has to think about um, how it continues to pursue its main pillars of cooperative security, collective defense and crisis management, while at the same time um, making sure that the next generation of thinkers understand its utility. And so that's kind of some of the stuff that I'm looking closely at going forward. Mm. Great. Um, 
as a sort of final question um, to conclude, what are the main things that you hope to see um, happening with NATO um, in, in, the, in the coming years or decade, let's say? So I think that the challenge for NATO is that the security environment has broadened so much that the alliance can't decide whether it's going to do traditional and co conventional deterrence or if it's going to face hybrid threats and these more esoteric ideas when it comes to security. It has to do both. And then the paradoxical difficulty is therefore NATO then risks doing too much and not having a, a purpose or not not having a purpose, but being unclear about what it is and what its purpose is. So I think the important thing that I'll be looking for is definitely the new strategic concept, which is going to be released at the summit in Madrid in 2022. And that's going to lay out what NATO's main pillars are for the next 10 years. Um, the last strategic concept drafted in 2010 is definitely outdated now. Uh, there's some language in there about say Russia that just doesn't fit today's current security environment. So I wanna make sure that the Alliance is fit for purpose, that it is adaptable, that it is flexible, that it thinks about conventional deterrence on land at sea, but it is also able to think creatively and effectively about new and emerging security challenges that we haven't dealt with in the past and for which we will have to be very <laughs> prepared and flexible to deal with in the future. I'm thinking about you know cyber and new and disruptive technologies, chief among them. Um, I'd also love to see a subnational diplomacy effort on behalf of NATO where it goes beyond the capitals of the United States and you know, Berlin and London and DC and Paris and has conversations with people outside of these capitals and, and, and learns about how they think of security and what they think NATO should be. And um, I think that will help it have, have a clearer sense of what it is and what it means and what it should be doing going forward. Yeah, I think the, that would be great to see. Um, thank you, Rachel, so much for um, being here with us today in this uh, podcast episode. Um, it was a very interesting insight into the doings uh, of NATO and uh, some of the challenges that it faces. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Goodbye.